Hello there, and welcome to the Presidency Podcast. This is episode one, with a stately bow. If you enjoy this episode, please consider supporting me on Patreon, where for the price of a foot-long sandwich, you can gain access to members' exclusive episodes. At the time of the posting of this episode, if you support me on Patreon, you should be able to catch the first two episodes on my series that covers the original 13 colonies. Right now, I am covering Virginian colonial history. So if you have any interest in that or in the early colonial period of the original 13 colonies, please consider supporting the show. You will not regret it. Just look the Presidency Podcast up on Patreon or click the link in the show notes if you are interested. As of right now, the two episodes I have out for my Patreon supporters are The Colony of Roanoke and the second one is The Early Beginnings of Jamestown. Additionally, if you don't feel like you are interested in any of the bonus episodes, I have just added a $1 pledge option if you feel you just want to support the show. And $1 really goes a long way. It takes a lot of time to edit, record, and research these episodes. Well, anyway, with that, let's get on to the show. Today we are going to discuss George Washington's childhood and upbringing, and we will see how that foreshadowed his future. By the time Washington was born, it would be a misnomer to consider the Washington family British. George would have been a third-generation American at this point. While Americanism was not as profound as it would be in years to come, it certainly was something that was becoming ever different from the metropole of England. George was born in a very small house, perhaps something that would have been more akin to a shack or cabin of sorts. It was nevertheless a simple dwelling that got the job done. The site of his birth was an area called Pope's Creek, no doubt named after a Washington ancestor, the Pope's. The house would eventually burn down, and any record of it is minute. Washington was born on February 11, 1732. This date was later changed to February 12th due to the shift away from the Julian calendar to the more accurate Gregorian calendar, which is why we celebrate President's Day on the 22nd rather than the 11th. Shortly after his birth, the family moved to the site which is now referred to as Mount Vernon. If I had to guess, old Augustine wanted to have his wife bear the child down in the shack of the woods, so the mansion wouldn't have that new child smell. But that's just me talking. I'm sure it was normal in the 18th century to have your wife give birth away from the comfort of their own home. At Mount Vernon, until the age of six, Washington grew and began to experience the world. He was born into a world which I would say was quite different than today. It was a much more formalized culture which carved out a hierarchy, which constantly incentivized, as we will see, the want for upward social movement. After the age of six, George once again packed up and moved, this time just across the Rappahannock River in a location around Fredericksburg. From the record we have, it seems the Washington family did not live lavishly, but they did have many comforts. However, I think, as you will see as the story progresses, Washington was not as well off as we were told or previously taught. In fact, in the future, many of the founding fathers considered Washington to be made of a different cloth and was a bit rougher than the silk which they were spun from. Many of them even looked down on him as inferior to themselves, especially intellectually. And as we will see, his upbringing was much different than that of the other men who shaped America. As a famous adage goes, the founding fathers were the well-bred, the well-fed, the well-read, and the well-wed. For the most part, this was true. But as we meet characters later in Washington's story, there will be some major outliers. In regard for the idea of Washington being born into a life of complete lavish with silver and silk came from the writer Nathaniel Hawthorne. Hawthorne wrote that Washington was, quote, 
born with his clothes on, his hair powdered, and made a stately bow on his first appearance to the world. Unquote. This is quite the contrary to say the least. As we will see, many things transformed George from a common member of the Upper Virginian Planter Society into a stoic legend. If we look back at his main childhood home, we see a few things. The house sat perched over a cliff on the Rappahannock and had six rooms, which in all had 13 beds and a couch. Here they lived in modest comfort. In an inventory made in 1743, the most prized possessions were considered to be one soup spoon, 18 small spoons, seven teaspoons, a watch, and a sword. All this for the time period would have totaled just around 25 pounds. Outside of their silver spoons, most of what they used on a daily basis would have been whittled wood. On top of the 1743 household inventory, Augustine owned 20 slaves. This is something that I want to point out now, so we do not forget or gloss over it. In this podcast, my plan is to ensure that I cover slavery and the atrocities against American Indians. I will include all the details that I can, including the honest brutality of everything. Slavery and racism are both ugly marks of American history, and it would be a major mistake if I shuffled my feet around the topic or barely covered it. If you have issues with the way I cover it, email me and we can talk about it. Washington and his family were all slave owners. There was no way around it. If you go to Mount Vernon today, you are able to see the slave quarters. It is easy to compare that to the Washington family residence and see the glaring differences. The size of one slave's lodging is about half the size of the main dwelling at Mount Vernon. Plus, more slaves live in the dwellings than in the home. Slavery will be a common trend that we will see throughout the early part of the Presidency podcast. And will essentially be a major topic always looming in the background until the late 19th century. Four of the first five presidents, the ones that we will cover in our revolutionary tome, were from Virginia and slave owners. In fact, the last president to own slaves was Grant. So slavery will be a trend for the next century and a half. So keep that in mind as we trudge through American history. And please know that this is not a panegyric for these individuals, but rather a study on who they were, a telling of their lives, and a deep survey of American history. Well, with that depressive note, let's get back on with the show. Later, the family moved to a different house and property that Augustine owned. The new house had six rooms, four below, two above. There were 13 beds crammed into the house in total. With all these beds and bedrooms and a bustling Potomac River right outside the door, countless boats, ferries, and travelers streamed by and stopping to rent a place to lay their heads in his childhood home. His childhood home was so stopped by by travelers, it was often called Fairy Farm. There was even a local advertisement in the Fredericksburg newspaper that described the home as a handsome dwelling house. Many of these travelers would tell tales to a youthful Washington about their transatlantic travels. This filled his head with adventure and aspirations to leave his bend in the river and become properly educated in England, as many members of the Virginian Planter Society sent their youth. This was the common, if not expected, path of a son of a colonial planter, so they may help manage the various estates and eventually succeed them. This was a colonial lifestyle that resolved around profits and expanding them. Living at Ferry Farm, Washington was able to see some aspects of the greater British Empire in the works. The town of Fredericksburg was only six miles downstream. Here, Washington was able to see the bustling port town transport tobacco and iron to London. The Virginian colonials were constantly trying to match the British, and more importantly, London counterparts, desperately trying to be accepted by them or even to be considered their equals. Unfortunately, for those in the New World, they were seen as lesser than those of the Metropole. 
This created a massive inferiority complex among the elites of colonial society, and no doubt was a small part of the future tumultuous divisions that would later in the 18th century explode. With this, as I stated earlier, a proper education was key, and education will become a major obstacle in George's early life. But before we get to that, let's dive into some of his family life. George was the oldest child of Augustine Washington's second marriage. Augustine was involved in the local government, and he was the owner of the Washington family iron mine, which accounted for the majority of his wealth. His first wife, Anne Pope, died and led Augustine to remarry. This created a large age gap between George and his older siblings. He was in the middle of two families, and many believe this led him to acquire early political skills. With so many younger siblings and his father being constantly away on business, George was forced to help look after his younger siblings with his mother, Mary Ball Washington. Just a quick note, I have posted images of both Mary Ball Washington and Augustine Washington on my Facebook page. If you are interested in seeing them, just check out my page on Facebook simply named The Presidency Podcast. Mary Ball Washington was seen as a rough woman for the times. It is said that she even smoked a pipe, which was extremely uncommon for women of the day, especially women who were members of colonial planter society, and as we will see, she was a very strict parent. Mary constantly pushed Washington to be better, but hardly in an affectionate way. She was very controlling of George and was basically, as I like to think of her, as kind of the ultimate helicopter mom. From his mother's direction, we can see an early departure in his life from a pampered life of nobility that is often thought of Washington. His mother made him wake up with the sun every morning, a habit that he in fact kept for the rest of his life. She taught her children to use what they had and to gain the full ability from it. Shortly after the family moved to Ferry Farm, a very important figure in George's life arrived home after his long stay in education from the Appleby Grammar School in England. This individual was Lawrence Washington. Lawrence was the firstborn of Augustine's first marriage and was 14 years George's senior. He was a very good student in grammar school, eventually rising to the rank of teacher's assistant while getting his education. Lawrence must have been the ideal role model for a young George, a spitting image of who he wanted to be. He was educated, mature, and a well-traveled gentleman who gave George aspirations to get the same experiences. I was going to cover Lawrence's and George's relationship in this episode, but it ran way longer than I planned, so I will cover it in a standalone episode following this one. As the relationship was a defining factor in George's early life. Upon Lawrence's return, Augustine Washington assigned Lawrence to manage the plantation and estate of their last residence known as Little Hunting Creek. He played a major role in Augustine's landed property as his ownings was massively exploding in the last decade or so, as now he owned over 10,000 acres of land and 50 slaves. On April 12, 1743, something that would prove to foreshadow George's later life, Augustine Washington died young at age 49. Augustine had ridden out into bad weather, where he caught an illness, most likely pneumonia, and shortly thereafter died. George even commented later about his family's early death, saying, quote, Though I was blessed with a good constitution, I was a short-lived family. Unquote. This was a very impactful event on George's life, as his rough life that followed molded him into the man that he would eventually become the first president of the United States. Upon Augustine's death, Lawrence was a main beneficiary as he received a little hunting creek and the family iron mine. 
which again was a main source of income for the family. Augustine Jr., the second oldest, also simply known as Austin or Gus, received the place of George's birth, Pope's Creek. George himself received Ferry Farm, his mother's and younger siblings' current residence, as well as a piece of land upstream called Deep Run, and some properties located in the town of Fredericksburg. On top of his land acquisitions, he was given 10 slaves, which I think is pretty crazy, as at the age of 11, Washington legally was the owner of 10 humans. The only problem for a young George was that he could still not legally inherit these assets until he came of age, and until then his mother would control his estate. The only problem about this was that Mary Ball Washington did not relinquish her control of the state until George was 41. The death of Augustine spelt two major consequences for George. First, that Augustine's death removed any hope for George to receive a genteel education like both his brothers Lawrence and Augustine Jr. received at Appleby Grammar School in England. This was not good for George, as he would mature and join Virginia's Colonial Planter Society. As, at the time in Virginia, a white male would receive four to six hours of education per day, where he would then start working on an apprenticeship managing estates, while women, blacks, and American Indians would receive little to no formal education. Virginia was focused on mere imaging their society with that of the metropole, so they did not educate everyone, as was commonplace further north in the colonies, such as New England. This lack of education was something that scarred Washington for life, and something that he believed limited him as a person. Washington even wrote once in a letter, quote, I am conscious of a defective education, unquote. Washington's later colonial and revolutionary colleagues were very aware of his lack of education, and in many ways even looked down upon him for it. Jefferson, Madison, Adams, and even the orphan Hamilton all had a vast better education than he did. Even while he was president, some members of Congress doubted if he was actually literate at all, or if he instead simply copied others' work in his own hand. John Adams once said, quote, Washington was not a scholar, is certain. That he is too illiterate, unlearned, unread for his station and reputation is equally past dispute. But he is indeed a thoughtful man, unquote. The Postmaster General at the time, Thomas Pickering, doubted that he could read it all. Thomas Jefferson himself was confused about how such an unlearned man, such as Washington, could become such a great figure in early American society. He stated, quote, His, meaning Washington's, mind was great and powerful without being of the very first order, unquote. Jefferson later went on to comment about his predecessor's intellect as, quote, Although in the circle of his friends, where he might be unreserved with safety, he took a free share in conversation, his colloquial talents were not above mediocrity. Possessing neither copiousness of ideas, nor fluency of words, in public when he called on for a sudden opinion, he was unready, short, and embarrassed. Yet he wrote literally, rather diffusely, in an easy and correct style. This he had acquired by conversation with the world, for his education was merely reading, writing, and common arithmetic, to which he added surveying at a later day. His time was employed in action chiefly, reading little, and that only in agriculture and English history." Unquote. This lack of former education gave the young Washington the task of improving himself in life. 
While he did receive some informal schooling from his mother, it mostly was focused on simple math and the configuration of the stars. He also intended an unnamed school in the area at the time, but it was by no means sufficient. Being fatherless, the young George learned to do what he could with his own resources. This created the toughness that happens in children that are made to act as adults young in life. George learned aspects of the law and economics while he grew older as he copied out legal forms such as leases and land patents. He absorbed their practical information. It is said that his own teenage prose at the time was turgid and ungrammatical, and that he lacked any real elegance in his handwriting, but it was said to be easy to read. We know he lacked knowledge of any foreign language or in Latin or Greek, and struggled as he could not pick them up later in life to his great regret. He wrote to his young relatives that, quote, every hour misspent is lost forever, and the future years cannot compensate for lost days, unquote. Because he lacked this education, he took it upon himself to better himself and to fit in society. A 20th century historian stated that, quote, more than most, Washington's biography is a story of a man constructing himself. Unquote. He became an avid reader young, looking to replace what he could in books with what he lacked in schooling. He loved the commentaries by Caesar, which he read in translation. He also enjoyed the play written by Joseph Addison called Cato, which told the young ancient Republican's life. He was drawn to the Republican Roman virtue. Washington wrote once, early in his life, that he would live his life in a way that would pursue honor and reputation. He would judge himself based on how he followed these virtues and judge others the same accordingly. This showed a bit of egalitarianism in Washington's belief early in life. The ancient historian Plutarch wrote in his work, The Roman Lives, he described Cato as such, quote, It is said of Cato that even from infancy, in his speech, his continence, and all his childish pastimes, he discovered an inflexible temper unmoved by any passion, and firm in everything. He was resolute in his purposes, much beyond the strength of his age, to go through whatever he undertook. It was difficult to incite him to laughter. His countenance seldom relaxed even into a smile. Unquote. And I don't know about you, but that sounds like George Washington a lot to me. At this time, public virtue was a very impressive indicator in society. The 18th century philosopher Montesquieu described virtue as such, quote, the love of the laws and of one's country, unquote. Washington clearly fulfills this idea of virtue. He was also a reader of Seneca, who wrote things such as, quote, he is a brave man, that he can look death in the face with a smile, and the contempt of death makes all the miseries of life easy to us, unquote. You can see some of Washington's stoic personality starting to come out as he developed early on. He would use work like these to form a lifelong mantra of embracing death without complaint. Reading was a very important part of a young Washington's life. He warned his adopted grandson once, quote, Light reading may amuse for the moment, but leaves nothing solid behind, unquote. He always read books for practical wisdom, never books with abstract thought or fiction. Washington had in his mind this concept of wanting, needing to become a sophisticated English country gentleman, even if it was only on the exterior. One thing that he would do early on was to watch the mannerisms and behavior 
of the Virginian gentry and try to learn the ways of higher society. One of the most impactful books in his life was that of the rules and civility and decent behavior in company and conversation. This book was a guidebook about etiquette that was written by a French Jesuit monk in the 16th century. It claimed to teach, quote, modesty, deference, and submission to authority, unquote. Washington would often write out all 110 social rules in order to greater improve his social veneer. The guide was basically a warning against any and all social gaffes, which, compared to modern times as we look at our contemporary politicians, it was much more important to control one's behavior. Some examples of the guides include, quote, In the presence of others, sing not to yourself with a humming noise, nor drum your fingers or feet, unquote. Some other of the rules include, Shift not yourself in the sight of others, nor gnaw on your nails. But do no face with your spittle by approaching too near to him when you speak. Cleanse not your teeth with a tablecloth, napkin, fork, or knife. But if others do it, let it be done with a pick tooth. This book is where he learned to become extremely courteous at all times, even while in uncomfortable situations, as we will see in the narrative as it moves on. Washington was afraid to insult one superior, but he always expected courtesy. In regards to the book, one historian noted that it taught Washington, quote, the importance of managing his body, his facial expressions, his speech, and his mood, unquote. Another historian stated that, if followed correctly, the guidebook would have produced a cool, pragmatic, and very controlled young man with genteel manners. This was exactly the social exterior that Washington was looking for. I find this all a bit mind-blowing. The idea that someone would base their whole lives or personality around one book. But, now that I think about it, we all know those guys in college who did that with Das Kapital, or Beyond Good and Evil. However, Washington seemed to later understand the impact of this book, or at least its principles, as later in life he wrote to many younger relatives, quote, You are now extending into the stage of life when good or bad habits are formed. When the mind will be turned to things useful and praiseworthy, or to disposition and vice, and we too often mistake coarse language for wit and writing, swearing, intoxication, and gambling for manliness, unquote. This self-made education was just one of the ways that George formed a stoic facade and philosophy. Adams was correct in that Washington was no scholar. But he knew how to adapt to his surroundings and to be a practical thinker. It is easy to see that he was capable of observing and learning, two skills that will become very important later in his life and career. It was clear a young Washington had something to prove, and with his skills and self-reliance, it seems he knew that he was bound for greater things. With that, I don't want to make this episode too long, I wanted to talk about two other topics in this episode, that being George's relationship with his mother and his relationship with his brother Lawrence. But I realize you want to hear me ramble on for over an hour. Next episode, I will try to tackle both of these topics. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you are looking for more Presidency Podcast content, I do have two additional members episodes available on my Patreon. The first one covers the colony of Roanoke, and the second one covers the early history of Jamestown. So if those sound interesting to you, 
please check them out. Also, if you have any additional topics you would like to hear me cover, please let me know, and perhaps I can cover them on my members' feed. Please tell a friend or anyone else who you think would be interested in the podcast, as a word of mouth is the best way to grow a show. Additionally, if you enjoy the podcast, please follow me on Twitter at ThePresPod, or follow me on Instagram or Facebook simply at The Presidency Podcast. Like I said before, I will have pictures up on my Facebook of George Washington's parents. Also, reach out to me on my email, which is presidencypodcast at gmail.com if you have any comments or concerns. Thank you so much for listening. And with that, hail to the chief. (laughs) 